the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer, WGUL. We are an iHeart station, so you can reach me on your smartphone anywhere in the world, 9 to 10 AM Eastern Standard Time every Sunday. And our website is am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. And we're streaming me live. Oh, boy. So if you don't have a radio or you don't have your cell phone, you can use your computer and a headset and listen to me. It's a lot of fun. We're having big fun here, and that's the main thing. you got to come to the show if you want to have the fun. And... There's fun going on in Washington, D.C. I love it. So Neil Gorshuk, and this has stimulated me to think about the Supreme Court, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. He has been nominated by the president to fulfill Judge Scalia's position. Scalia died unexpectedly, as you recall, last year. And the former president, whose name I can't remember anymore, uh, was unable to appoint anyone because the Senate, which is now Republican-controlled and was Republican-controlled throughout most of the last year, said that it would not accept any nominee that he sent forward. And the reason for that was that the precedent has been that a president would not appoint a nominee or name a nominee to the Supreme Court in deference to the incoming president. And, of course, Obama broke with that tradition. And this upset the Republicans, as many things have upset the Republicans, including the exclusion of the Republicans from the conversation about the Affordable Care Act. And now this is coming back to haunt the Democrats. So it pays to be inclusive, at least to a certain degree. So let's take a look at Gorshuk, another Catholic boy. By the way, you probably didn't know this, but... My family's got a lock on the Supreme Court. We've got three Jews and five Catholics on the Supreme Court, and Gorshuk is a Catholic. Well, he was. He, now he's an Episcopal, but that's, you know, Catholic light. That's, that's like Catholicism with tea and crumpets. So he is or was raised a Catholic, so we're going to have the family basically running the, the Supreme Court. I love it. I just love it. How does that happen? Well, 
Supreme Court justices are driven and they're often activists, of course, either pro or con, either liberal or conservative or pro-judiciary or less judicial uh, strength or muscle in the federal government, so on and so forth. And you're going to see that in the Catholic and Jewish sides of, of the family because of the way we're brought up, the way we're taught. And it's also a, a, a work ethic that's hard to describe. When you have Sister Mary Holywater wrapping your knuckles because you didn't do your homework, uh, you learn quickly that you do your homework or you won't have knuckles in a year or two. So Neil is the man. Now, he was born in Colorado, and uh, his mother was Ann Gorshuk. Uh, what was her last name? I can't remember. I think she was the first EPA, Buford, B-U-R-F-R-D, Ann Gorshuk Buford. She was Neil's mother, and she was the first head of the Environmental Protection Agency under Ronald Reagan, and she got thrown under the bus, and Congress kicked her out of the position. And Neil was very upset about that, and he said, you know, Mom, you're in the right. You should stand up for yourself. He was 15 years old. And she taught him the lesson of, well, you have to take a fall for the, for the leader every now and then, and it was my turn. So she left office in disgrace, although her credentials and her, her actions were stellar, and I don't think anybody ever even contemplated any criminal charges against her. It was purely a political situation. So he grew up in the shadow of his mother, who was... Uh, integral in the Reagan administration in the 1980s, and uh, he became a judge. He worked his way, I think he went to Columbia and then Harvard Law School and worked his way up. He was appointed by George W. Bush, George II, George II in 2006 to fill a vacancy in the, I believe, the Tenth Circuit Court. And his credentials are impeccable. Apparently he's a really nice guy and knows how to disarm uh, uh, a crowd and make everybody feel comfortable and at the same time let his opinions be known. And he has stood firmly on conservative grounds when it comes to his legal judgments and his, his own moral and political philosophies on assisted suicide. He's opposed to that. I agree with that because it, it's a slippery slope. And once you start that, where does it stop? Do you allow a 25-year-old who's come in overdosed on Ellaville uh, to say, I don't want to be resuscitated, I don't want to be saved, don't do anything to me. Well, I mean, basically that's assisted suicide. If you say, okay, I'll let you die, you know, because you've taken a lethal dose of this drug, you're going to die. Well, I, I, I don't agree with that, you know, and I think that that's the slope that we get into. Money in politics, uh, he says that he thinks... There's a fundamental right to, to money being put into campaigns for politicians. Of course, he's strong on freedom of religion. And on administrative law, he's a conservative, and he wants a more strict interpretation. And he fought uh, for reconsideration of the Chevron Oil Company versus the Natural Resources Defense Council in 1984, in which the Supreme Court instructed courts to grant deference 
to federal agencies' interpretation of ambiguous laws and regulations. And he said, no, that's wrong. I mean, you know, you're writing the laws so that you have a, a firm, clear guideline as to how to adjudicate, how to judge, how to prosecute these various questions that come before courts on the civil side as well as the criminal side. And Trump has immediately addressed that and has told at least a few of the departments under his auspices that they're to treat the taxpayer with deference. And it's not the taxpayer's place to treat the government agent with deference, although we we should be courteous, of course, but that if there is a debate as to what the interpretation is, it should be given to the person for whom it is being interpreted uh, not, and not for the, the, the government agents. And I, I had this happen to me personally, so I, I, I feel very strongly about this. Uh, I was... I went back in training in the 90s to do cardiology fellowship and so on and so forth. And I had placed all of my office equipment into storage, and I hauled it with me as I went from uh, one program to another. And, of course, it was being stored. It was medical equipment. It was for business. And I was trying to save a buck, so I did my taxes myself. And instead of filing a corporate tax return for all of this, I filed it under a Schedule C. Now, the Schedule C is for... Uh, businesses, little businesses, single or family-owned mom-and-pop businesses that are not incorporated, and you put down your your expenses and your expenditures and your depreciations and deductions as well as your income from the business. Well, there's no income. So at any rate, I took about, I don't know, forty or $50,000 over a three-year period in tax deductions that I felt were legitimate. And I got a call from the IRS and had to report to the Coger Center here in St. Petersburg. And uh, there was this woman who was uh, an IRS investigative agent, smoking, uh, looked like she was a drinker, uh, angry and vicious, accused me of all kinds of things, said I couldn't do that. So all of a sudden I get a tax bill and I'm just starting practice in St. Petersburg for almost $50,000. Oh my God. Of course I was devastated. <laughs> you know, how am I going to pay this? And, uh, so I got an, an accountant and he was, a an arguer. He was a polemic accountant, I shall say. And he went down and argued with her and got it down to, I don't know, 15, 16, 17,000. And I paid it and, uh, went on about my business. And about a year later, uh, an administrative review by her superior said that she was wrong and that I had the right to take those deductions. So I got all of those deductions back and was able to use them over a several year period as well as the money I had paid in. I actually made money on the deal, but uh, I felt very strongly that it was, it was the spirit of the law that was intended to make it easier for me to go back and train and yet continue to hold on to my medical equipment, which, as we all know, gets more and more expensive every year. You know, a, a, a pair of scissors that cost me five or ten bucks 30 years ago now costs 30 or 40 bucks. And, and it's not a small item when, when you have to staff an office and, and buy 
equipment and surgical instruments and x-ray and lab and all the things that, that it takes to run the kind of practice that I have. So I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that both the president and Judge Gorshuk are on the same page as I am about the administrative law. <clears throat> so he has a number of areas in which he has been uh, a real stand-up conservative, and he favors a strict reading of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Uh, and I, I think that if we don't have a more strict interpretation of the laws, that we're going to drift more and more into anarchy, and then everybody can interpret the law the way they want and argue that. And I, I realize that that's a lot of what lawyers do, but or at least it seems to we laymen that that's what they do. But they do have rules of court that they have to follow. Uh, it's it's not the the uh, cowboy atmosphere that you would think it is. And I've been in court a number of times. But I, I asked a medical student who was rotating with me years ago. Uh, we were talking about the Constitution and the uh, preamble to the Constitution. You know, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Everybody remembers that. And one of the clauses, one of the phrases is the purpose of the Constitution is to establish justice. Establish justice. And I said to her, what does that mean to you, establish justice? And she said, well, you know, we all have our own opinion and feelings about what justice is, and, and, and that has to be respected. And I said, no, that's not what it means. It was an 18th century term that, that meant make the laws and make the laws fair and make the laws apply to everybody. So you may not think it's just that the IRS is saying you owe another $2,000, but we the people may have already made that decision and said, no, you can't take your pet beagle as a write-off unless you're in the breeding business. So I think that we have both a duty and a responsibility and a privilege, I should say responsibility and a privilege, both of those uh, to grasp the meaning of established justice and to realize that this is largely a majority rule. Yes, it's uh, filtered through Republican form of government, and we try to protect the rights of the minorities, especially in areas like uh, criminal law, uh, freedom of speech and religion, uh, speedy trials, so on and so forth. And we have to continue to do that, but we also have to respect the fact that it is a majority rule. Now, my son said to me last night, we were going down to Walmart, the propane tank and that's buried in the yard has got a leak in it, so we have no propane, and they've ordered another tank, and we cook it with gas. So I'm cooking for the Super Bowl party tonight. It's my, my thing that I do. I make the, the gumbo for the gang. And so we had to go down to Walmart and pick up a couple of electric burners. I'm surprised at how cheap they are. Oh, my gosh, Bill, they were like nine, ten bucks a piece. Now, granted, they're not top drawer, but it's enough to heat up and cook some gumbo. So he said, Dad, what do you think about Gorshuk? I said, I think he's uh, got all the conservative credentials, and he's impeccable and impeachable, unimpeachable, uh, has a very clean record, and is well-liked and respected by everybody. Apparently, he received a unanimous vote 
when he was appointed to the 10th uh, District Court by George W. Bush. And he said, well, the Democrats are going to going to try and stop him. And I said, you mean with a filibuster? And he said, yeah. He said, what do you think? I said, I think it would be the wrong place and the wrong time for the Democrats to take a stand because if they do, the Republicans have made it clear that they will opt or take the nuclear option, which is that they will vote to change the rules of the Senate. Now, we think that the House and the Senate are chaos and they don't have rules. They, also, they, they do have rules, and they also have separate rules depending on which house it is. So the Senate has rules on filibusters speaking to stop a bill from being passed. If you take the floor, you can have it as long as you want under Senate rules. And uh, the House, I don't know. I don't think they do because it would probably be chaos with 435 of them. So they probably don't have a filibuster. They don't allow that and you're only allowed so many minutes to speak. But the Senate has that. Now, since the Republicans are the majority right now, they can change the rules. They can change the rules. And then the Democrats lose that if there's something of greater proportion that they want to take a stand on. They won't be able to. They won't be able to unless they have a majority of the Senate and change the rules back again which they probably won't do because if they have a majority, then they don't need to filibuster. So it's a, it's a bit of, a, of a, a, a tight spot that the Democrats are working themselves into over this. Do you want to take a stand and make a fight out of the uh, appointment of a Supreme Court justice who is one of the cleanest to have come through and one of the brightest to come through in years to fill Judge Scalia's position? Or do you want to save that filibuster ability for uh, something of greater importance? And it's going to be tough to sell this to the general population as a justified filibuster. I mean, the guy is a good guy. And that's what we need more than anything, more than liberals or conservatives. We need thoughtful people who have morals and values. Maybe that's why my family has taken over the court all Catholics and Jews. We got five Catholics and three Jews, one dead Catholic, and we're going to fill them with a Catholic light since Gorshuk was raised Catholic, but apparently converted to or switched over to the Episcopal faith. I think he did some studies in London when he was a young man. And again, that's just Catholicism light or Catholicism with a cup of tea and some crumpets. <clears throat> And that's okay, you know, everybody's welcome. By the way, I don't practice Catholicism, so a lot of this is just shooting the bull and making a point. So justice, what is justice? And how did we get at a Supreme Court? Where the heck did this thing come from? I know that you don't remember because you fell asleep during civics class and history class, so you forgot all about how the Supreme Court was formed. It's the third article of the Constitution. It establishes a Supreme Court. And in 1789, uh, the Congress established the number of Supreme Court justices, which can be changed. And at that time, it was six. And they established that it had certain powers and responsibilities. And, and interestingly, one of the first cases that the court tried 
and reversed the the Congress on was uh, one of the articles of the Judicial Act of 1789. And the Supreme Court said, we have power over deciding what is and is not law at the federal level, but certain state powers we don't have any control over because at that time it wasn't written into the Constitution. The amendments had not come to play yet. And so it's, it's a little bit ironic that one of the first things that the court did was to strike down the Judicial Act, or at least parts of it, that established the court. you got to love it only in America. <clears throat> and that gives us, uh, uh, I think it should give us some pride because the check and balance does work. Uh, one of the main cases occurred in 1803 under Justice Marshall. Marshall was the chief justice who actually established the the tenor and tone of the Supreme Court. He's considered more or less the father of the Supreme Court because, let's face it, this was a brand new form of government. The world had never seen uh, a form of government like the United States had established in 1789, 88. And so folks were learning as they went along. And Marshall was not one of the uh, most astute jurists in history. He did not uh, spend a lot of time studying case law, and, and these guys would study case laws even back in, into uh, the the uh, English case laws that preceded the formation of our of our colonies, and, and that's where they drew a lot of their knowledge and a lot of their inferences from when they sat and looked at a case. And in that case, the Federalist. Uh, President John Adams had lost his reelection bid to the anti-federalist Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was the uh, liberal at that time, states' rights. Adams was the conservative for a more uh, powerful federal government. And at the last minute, Adams appointed several federalist federal judges who were then approved by the Senate, which was also federalist. Knowing this, when Jefferson became president, he ordered his Secretary of State, Senator of uh, State, James Madison, later President Madison, same Madison that was instrumental in writing the Constitution, along with Alexander Hamilton, and uh, ordered him not to deliver the commission to William Marbury. Marbury sued Madison in an attempt to gain his post, and Marbury asked the Supreme Court to rule on the case. Whether Marbury deserved the commission and whether the Supreme Court could re could remedy his problem. That was the big question. The Supreme Court and James Marshall found that the Judiciary Act was unconstitutional because it gave powers to the Supreme Court and the Constitution does not give Congress the power to do that. So the Supreme Court ruled against some of its own power because Congress did not have the right to empower the Supreme Court with that power. It's confusing and it's crazy, but I love it. But it also established the precedent that the Supreme Court has the final say on laws that are made by the federal government. So the power of the Supreme Court was strengthened by this interpretation of the Judiciary Act of 1789, and at the same time took part of it away and said Congress doesn't have that right to give us that power over 
the states and individuals. Well, the Supreme Court, as we know, has evolved, and we have cases like the, the Dred Scott case. Dred Scott was a slave before the Civil War, and his owner had taken him to free states, uh, Minnesota, and I uh, forget where else, but states and territories that were non non-slave states and territories. And he said, well, since I have been brought into this area of no slavery allowed, then I'm now a, a citizen, a person, and I have a right to sue for my freedom. And the court said, no, no, you don't, <clears throat> because constitutionally you have no standing. African Americans were, were property at that time. And property can't sue an individual and you can't sue for your freedom. And at the same time, it struck down a law that Congress had passed, which had divided the new territories across the western United States into free states and slave states. And the court said, no, you can't do that. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that Congress has the power to uh, deem slavery or not deem slavery. And, of course, this drove a, a, a bigger wedge between the North and the South and the abolitionists and the slaveholders. And this became one of the rallying cries of the abolitionists and, and one of the uh, emotional charges that led to the Civil War. So this is uh, 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 an interesting situation. And then, as we all know, after the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln pushed through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 13th Amendment freed slaves and indentured servants. What's an indentured servant? Well, back in the day, if you owed money and you went bankrupt or someone sued you for that money and you didn't have it, uh, you could be sent to debtor's prison and basically you would be um, um, a servant uh, or a slave for a certain period of time during which you had to perform the duties of whoever it was you were sent to work for. And of course, they were supposed to feed you and give you a place to sleep, but uh, there was no, uh, no freedom. That is, you could not leave that position. Yeah, you could go to town and, and buy yourself a pair of shoes, but uh, you had to work that debt off in some way or another. A lot of people think we should bring that back, by the way. And so the 13th Amendment abolished that. It said that we can't have slavery, we can't have indentured servants, everybody's free, and everybody's a citizen. And then the 14th Amendment said that the laws have to apply equally, even at the state levels. And that became a, a big deal over the next uh, 100 years as the court wrestled back and forth with what are the rights of the federal government and what are the rights of the state government? And most of us remember, well, maybe not the, 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 uh, the 21st century kids. What do we call them, Bill? The, the new agers or no, what are, I can't remember, but uh, you know who I'm talking about. Not the, not the X generation, but the, uh, millennials. That's it. The millennials. There you go. I'm not sure that they'll remember the Brown versus the, uh, uh, the Little Rock School Board, in which the Supreme Court said that public schools have to be integrated. And we had had rulings 50 years earlier which said that separate but equal means that 
the schools don't have to be integrated. And so the court reversed itself. And, you know, this brings up to me what is an interesting phenomenon, and that is that the court is subject to public opinion and to the changing morals and values of the country. And that elasticity makes it, in my opinion, of great value. Of course, stretching it too far weakens it, in my opinion, and that's why I'm for a more strict interpretation of the Constitution. Now, if you don't like a strict interpretation, then do like other people have done and other branches of the government have done and propose an amendment and get it passed. Most famously in, in, in my lifetime was the amendment for uh, equality between the sexes, and this was meant to make it so that women would receive the same salary as men. And I continue to read reports from time to time that women are still not paid what men are paid. Of course, like all research that is in the popular press, I have to stop and ask, how was the study set up? Did this take into account the actual number of hours that everybody was working, uh, family leave time, pregnancy leave time, so on and so forth, and factor in the additional benefits that most women want and society should grant to them because they're the moms and we need the moms, at least for a little while longer. Test tube babies are on the way, but that'll probably be after I'm dead and gone. So we have to make certain allowances, of course, and we want women to be full participants in society, and but at the same time we want them to be moms and to be the maypole or the center of the family, if you will. A lot of responsibility is being put on, on the women. I, I, uh, I'm not sure that, that they're getting a fair shake. I see a lot of women struggling as they try to work hard at professions like medicine and law and still have time for family and children. So uh, it's, a, it's a tricky thing, but that was not passed. There was a time limit during which it had to have three-quarters of the states approve it, and that didn't happen. So the amendments are proposed. Uh, the Congress passes it, then it goes to the states, and it's not an easy thing to get an amendment. Not an easy thing at all. Now, the One of the first amendments, after the first ten, the Bill of Rights were accepted by Congress and the, and the nation, was the 11th Amendment because it stepped back over a Supreme Court decision that early on had said that uh, individuals can sue the states. And this, the federal government said, well, that, that's crazy because then you'll have all these people suing this, each state, so Florida may have a 1,000 lawsuits because you tripped and fell on a sidewalk. And, of course, that had to be remedied, and the 11th Amendment limited what we can sue the states over. And, uh, you know, that's a necessary aspect of, of government. Some people will say, well, that goes back to the old uh, English law. The, the, the crown was immune from suits. The, the king and the queen could not be sued. And uh, that it was just another way of 
uh, ensconcing and uh, cementing in these wealthy noblemen. But we can see that if we were allowed to sue the states and the jurisdictions on every little thing, uh, we'd, we'd have no no government. It would be chaos, uh, especially if there were big awards. Our tax dollars would be paying people who had on oversized shoes and didn't see the little bump in the sidewalk. So we have to have some of this. The Marshall Court established firmly federal supremacy. And you say, well, isn't that what we're fighting as conservatives? And I would say to you that we are not fighting federal supremacy. We are fighting for proper regulation of the federal government and proper control over its actions uh, so that it does not infringe upon our individual rights and does not infringe upon our morals and values. And that's quite different than saying we need a strong federal government. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, whose world, by the way, we live in, we don't live in Thomas Jefferson's world, we live in Alexander Hamilton's world, and he was never president, he envisioned pretty much what we have today, a strong, large industrial nation with a strong federal government and a strong military and a tax base, and the ability to still be elastic and reshape ourselves and our laws as we need to. And he had supporters like George Washington and John Adams and Knox. By the way, there's a fort named after Knox. It's got a lot of gold in it. I'd kind of like to go in there and see what's happening. And on that thought, I'm going to go take a break. I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. When you come back, I've got a question for you. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Trump's ban on accepting certain travelers and all refugees is still on hold today after a federal appeals court denied a Justice Department request for a stay during its appeal of the original ruling. More challenges and uh, words from the government will come tomorrow before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The leader of al-Qaeda's affiliate in Yemen has released an audio recording in which he criticizes President Trump and says a recent raid against a group killed 25 people, including 11 women and children. Two women are dead and their van missed, when their van missed a bridge over the 101 freeway in L.A., smashing through concrete pillars and launching over six lanes of traffic before colliding with a southbound car yesterday. And La La Land director Damien Chazelle waltzed off with the top honor at the Directors Guild of America Awards last night. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727 387 
4-6-4-1-1. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. Hey, I'm Brant. So there's this guy named Jordan. He's a healthy guy. He's a dad of six, and he works as a guide in Alaska. And he goes to the doctor, true story, he goes to the doctor, and he's diagnosed with cancer stage four and here's the thing. He had switched earlier from medical insurance to MediShare, where Christians share each other's medical bills. So the question for Jordan and his wife, Jenny, was, is this actually going to work? Our medical bills exceeded $160,000. MediShare members shared all our bills. And it was about more than just the money, too. This is a real community. MediShare is, is a family, a group of people that stick with you through the hardest times of your life. I just don't know how I could have done it without MediShare. It's so worth looking into. There's a reason this is growing so fast. So if you want to find out more, here is a number for you. 844-41-BIBLE. That's 844-41-BIBLE. This is Charles Osgood for Exogen. You know, when our five kids were growing up, someone was always getting sick. But when you tried to take anybody's temperature, all chaos would break out. When you're struggling with a fussy, squirmy kid, there's no value in those old-fashioned thermometers we used to use. Now my grandkids have it easy. The Exogen Temporal Scanner has changed all that. Just swipe it over the forehead and you get a fast, accurate reading. You don't even have to wake them up. And it's so easy, even Grandpa can do it. Now that's what I call real value. Partly sunny today, high 75 tonight, rather cloudy, low 58. Partial sunshine to begin your work week tomorrow, high 80. Tomorrow night, a moonlit sky, low 63. Plenty of sunshine Tuesday, high 78. Wednesday, times of clouds and sun, high 78. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Chuck Ellis for AM860, The Answer. I'm coming back here. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Uh, I wanted uh, Bill to start that two minutes into it so we could hear some of the lyrics. That's Metallica and Justice for All, and it's a it's a song about a heavy metal song about uh, the way the court systems are in the United States and the the lack of interest in what's right and wrong and the money that goes uh, through the courts or that is. Uh, shall we say, manipulated by the courts or by the lawyers who are fighting each other, especially in civil cases. By the way, if you didn't know, we are in the 11th Federal District Court, Florida, Georgia, uh, South Carolina. I don't know who all's in it. Some southern states. You say, well, where did the federal court system come from? 
Well, the first three articles of the Constitution lay out the the co-equal branches of the government. Uh, Article one is the Congress, the legislative branch, and Article two is the president, and he's the enforcer or the the uh, executive branch. They are the the cops and the attorneys for the country, and they're also the diplomats and uh, the head of various departments that fall under the president as set up by the Congress. And Article 3 is the Supreme Court, and this interprets the laws, and the the Supreme Court has the final say as to whether a law is legal or not. And that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to understand and to grasp, but this is the way that it is. And people think, well, if somebody lied in court and I lost my case because they were liars, can't I appeal that? Uh, No, you can't. Appeals are not based on the facts. The finder of fact are the lower courts. The upper courts are there to review whether or not the trial, the judge, uh, the jury, all the aspects of the trial in the court Uh, were conducted in a legal manner so that the upper courts, the appellate courts, and the supreme courts of the states and of the federal government are there to determine whether or not the law was followed. Not to determine whether or not the facts of the case were true or not, or right or wrong or not. That's not their, their, their purpose, and that was set out very early by Justice Marshall in his, uh, percolated down to all the state appellate and Supreme Courts. So let's say that uh, the first DNA case found that Jimmy Jones was guilty of murder and he was convicted and the facts were seemingly clear and, and truthful as delivered by the experts. But the defense attorney said, wait a minute, there's no precedent here for using DNA in a trial to convict someone of murder. You can't do that until there's some precedent or there's some law set. And so he appeals on behalf of Jimmy Jones, his, his client who murdered somebody and was nailed for the murder after DNA evidence was found at the scene and under the fingernails of the, of the victim. And so he gets it up to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court says, uh, We have to look at this and decide whether or not we're going to establish the precedent of allowing DNA to be used in a trial. We don't care if the DNA is right or wrong at this point, although we'll have to take into account the scientific evidence that says that DNA is a valid uh, instrument of, of investigation, just like fingerprints are. And let's just for argument sake say that the state Supreme Court says, well, there's no precedent, and we don't see a whole lot of hard facts yet that say that DNA is a legitimate investigative tool, and so we're overturning it, and Jimmy Jones can have a retrial, but without the DNA evidence. Well, then the state attorney general says, wait a minute, this is science that we know has been established, although it has not been used in court, it's been used in, or at least in criminal court, it's been used in determining paternity and in uh, breeding animals and so on and so forth. 
And so he appeals it to the federal courts, and it works its way up to the Supreme Court. And by the time it gets up there, there's, there's already more evidence and more uh, data available because other states have been using DNA by this time. And so the federal Supreme Court says, as a matter of law, we think that DNA, not that we think, that we're telling you that DNA is a legitimate and legal investigative tool and that we overturn the Florida State Supreme Court's decision to retry Jimmy Jones without the DNA. And since we are saying that the DNA is in, then there's no reason to retry him. We don't care if the facts are right or wrong. What we're saying is that DNA can be used in a court of law in a criminal case. And that's how it works. They don't care what's right or wrong. That's not what the law is about. The law is not about morality and immorality. Although we hope that our laws are based in our morals and values, and we try to see that they are, but of course the courts may interpret the law itself differently than we interpret it because they're not looking at the morality or immorality. They have a set of codes and precedences that they have to go by. And yes, when it gets to a Supreme Court level, there's going to be uh, the emotions of the, of the people that are involved so that we as a nation, the majority of us may say, you know what, DNA seems really solid to me. I mean, I, I went to uh, school to become a doctor and I studied genetics and I understand it and I've explained it to my friends and they all understand it and we all think it's a good thing. And so the Supreme Court may say, well, we're not supposed to be influenced by what happens outside of the, of the halls of, of justice here, but it looks like not only is there science, but the people are behind it. And if you think that they're completely immune from the sways of public opinion and morals and values, well, think again. Decisions are made uh, about law which do not necessarily have anything to do with the law, other than that, there is an ability to interpret the law and interpret it in the light of what the public opinion is and what people feel and think and what the, what the common gestalt is, if you will. And the judicial system is huge. It's vast. I mean, hundreds of millions of cases a year. And there are billions and billions of dollars spent nationwide. If you're a Supreme Court justice, you're going to make over 250000 a year. And there's nine Supreme Court justices, or at least there will be once uh, Trump gets someone through the Senate. And then they have a whole cadre of support attorneys and, and law clerks and interns. And it's, it's a humongous uh, federal department in terms of the time and money spent perhaps not as many personnel, but it takes a lot of time and money and effort. And you have to think about the state attorneys and the individual attorneys who try to bring cases before the court and the cost that that is uh, coming out of somebody's pocket somewhere in the country. So there's a lot of money. And that's before you get to the state level. And at the state level, think of all the judges there are. Think of all the attorneys there are. I was on the stage with uh, 
Rick Scott years ago, and I had called the state's attorney's office to ask for an opinion on who owned the medical chart because I had two doctors when I was chairman of the Department of Medicine at uh, one of the hospitals, and they were fighting. They had split up, and they were fighting over whose patients they were. And the attorney general said, there, there's really, you know, you cannot own a patient. You don't own a patient in Florida, and you don't own the chart. We're just custodians of the chart. And so I, I relayed that to, uh, not, not Scott, but uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the Republican that turned Democrat? Bill. You know who I'm talking about? At any rate, he was the governor, and he ran for Senate, and I mean for the House, and won recently. He ran for governor last time against Scott. Uh, I know I can see his face. At any rate, he was the state attorney general at that time, and I said, well, I just wanted to thank you uh, for the help your department gave. And he said, I have 5,000 attorneys. He didn't say, you're welcome or anything. I mean, he just said, I don't know, you know, kind of like, it's nothing to me. But at that time, there were 5,000 attorneys working just in the attorney general's office of the Florida Department of State. And that's a lot of attorneys. And then you have to think about the clerks and the uh, legal assistants and the secretaries and the runners and all the things that are necessary to make uh, a big organization like that run. So it's not a small thing. We put a lot of stock into our court systems, and we probably have one of the most extensive court systems of any country in the world, and also one of the busiest. We like to sue. We like to go to court. We like to get in fights with our spouses and end up in the family court. And that's a good and a bad. I think it's Unfortunate that we're at a point where we're having so many divorces and split-ups, but at the same time, thank God, we have an intermediary that can uh, cushion and absorb some of the emotions that come from a traumatic split-up between a husband and a wife, uh, and the family court does that, and it gives everybody time to cool down and think a little bit more rationally, and if not, the, the judge will do that for you. And the court system is a hierarchy. We have our county courts, uh, minor trial courts, and we have our district courts, which are our major trial courts. So the minor courts will have things like uh, the, the traffic court and the uh, small suits, small claims court, and, and all these different things that are minor misdemeanors. And then the district courts will take on the bigger challenges like uh, murder cases, uh, capital cases. And then the appellate court is where you go if you don't like the way the trial was conducted or you disagree with one of the interpretations of the law of the lower court. And then the appellate court, if you can't get satisfaction there, can go to the Supreme Court of your state. And it's basically the same with the federal government. You have federal magistrates, federal district courts, appellate courts, and, and then the Supreme Court of the United States, and it works its way up. And the appellate court is able to say that the trial was conducted properly and there's no uh, discrepancies in interpretation of the law by the judge or whatever and can send it back down and say, well, you know, we're not going to do anything. And the Supreme Court can do the same thing. 
at the state level and at the federal level. So if you get your case all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court can say, yay or nay, we will or we will not hear it. And if they will not hear it, then the lower court's decision or the last court to have made a decision, that stands and that's it. And you say, well, how do you get something into the Supreme Court? What if these guys don't want to mess with what I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about in my case? If it's going to establish uh, a new precedent, uh, if it's going to make somebody appear bigger in the newspaper, or the, uh, one of the judges on the courts, uh, if it's something that somebody's interested in at, on, the, on the Supreme Court or the appellate court, like administrative law or uh, uh, assisted suicide or something uh, uh, that's very um, timely and in the public side, well, they're more likely to take it up, and they will. They'll take a look at it, and they'll say, you know, this is, this is our, our opinion, and five to four, we're going to let this stand, or we're striking this down, or Obama does have the right, and Congress does have the right to impose a tax for the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare Act, but no, they do not have the right to tell the states that, that the states cannot have their fair share of the Medicaid money back just because they don't want to sign up with the federal government's idea of how Medicaid should be administered. So it's it's a fascinating phenomenon the way all this works. And the way we go to court is there's initial appearances, preliminary hearings, there's misdemeanor trials, traffic and parking cases, civil cases involving less than X amount of dollars, and there's also little courts that are set up that are informal, and my son got in a little trouble years ago, and so he had to go before a court of his peers, which were junior and senior high school students, and there was a law student as the judge, and, and they meted out that he had to have a 10 o'clock curfew for so many months and write a paper and keep his grades up, and, and if he didn't, then he would be handed back to the real court. So it works its way down, and it's fascinating and interesting how all this works. By the way, the question was, how many Supreme Court justices are established by law? And Congress can change that from time to time. They have. Initially, the first Judicial Act in 1789 established six justices. It was increased to nine. Franklin Roosevelt tried to get Congress to increase it to 12 so he could pack the court with his people and get his policies pushed through in the 1930s. And Congress balked and said no. So right now it's established at nine Supreme Court justices of the United States. And it looks like it's going to stay that way for the near future. I don't see any big changes coming. Uh, obviously six would be a tough number in this day and age because you'd have a lot of split decisions and nothing would be decided, which may or may not be good. But with nine, you've got an odd number, so you're going to have five to four. And that's how many Supreme Court justices are established by law at this time. The, the Constitution does not establish an exact number of Supreme Court justices. It remains fairly vague. And the Supreme Court and the lower uh, federal courts are set up uh, according to the direction of Congress. But the Supreme Court can still overturn a bill that Congress and the President have passed. 
great country. I love it. Not many places in the world like this. Well, it's been, for me, fascinating. I don't know if you guys enjoyed it, but and I hope that Gorsuch gets through easily. Uh, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to chit-chat with you guys about this and think about the Supreme Court and our court systems and how they're organized. But let's keep it as conservative and as close to the original intention as possible. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'm gone. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you may be, tooling down the road in your home, enjoying the day. It's time for... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.